This is obviously not the setting in which I expected to be preaching my first sermon back from our break, but we'll do what we can uh, in this time. The Farnsworth Art Museum in Rockland, Maine, near where we Coelhos took our recent break, like all of us, has had to adapt to the pandemic. Social distance restrictions, registrations, mask-wearing guidelines, and virtual showings have all shaped the life of the gallery. In defiance of this reality, the Farnsworth came up with a clever tagline. Art cannot be contained. Access might be limited, the, the mode in which it is encountered changed, but art itself cannot be contained. You can imagine a painting breaking out of its frame, uncontained. This Sunday, in our gospel reading this morning, invite us to recall and consider a moment where Jesus similarly cannot be contained, where he breaks the frame, the frame his followers may have put around him to this point, the, the frame around which the gospel of Mark has set out in the, its earlier chapters, the frame we may put around him in our skepticism or familiarity. The transfiguration is this glimpse of Jesus uncontained. In Mark 9, the frame is broken. While the passages we've looked at these past weeks have emphasized Jesus' work in ordinary places and in a hidden kind of way, the scene here is anything but ordinary. The setting upon a high mountain, the, the blazing clothes, the presence of the cloud, the booming voice, they all communicate. This is not business as usual. All these features associate Jesus with divinity, with glory. It's this momentary unveiling of Jesus' true nature as the second person of the Trinity, fully human, fully God, not fitting into our particular frames or categories. As we look at this passage a little this morning and what it might mean for us as a, a community of Jesus followers today, I want to group our thoughts around two headings. First, the journey into glory, and second, the one command. So first, the journey into glory. The motto of the Olympic Games is faster, higher, stronger. It communicates this sense of ascent each year, each Olympics, faster, higher, stronger. It feels like a similar motto for our reading might have been brighter, holier, more transcendent when referring to the person of Jesus. This is the point of the transfiguration. Jesus is revealed here to be higher, mightier, more exalted than we or his first disciples might have imagined. In verse 1 of chapter 9, just before our reading this morning, Jesus predicted that some of his followers would not perish before seeing the kingdom of God come in power. Our reading is then the fulfillment of that prediction. What Peter, James, and John witness is something that will be inaugurated later on in Jesus' death and resurrection more fully and realized in completion when Christ comes again. The very heights of heaven and earth below, drawn together in Jesus. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, bursting forth in creation. It cannot be contained. And what's communicated to these three is that their hopes and dreams 
are bound up in Jesus. He, more than Elijah or Moses, is the cause for hope. Both these figures, Elijah and Moses, are connected in the Old Testament, in Malachi, in Deuteronomy, with God's reign, the the day of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah. And the association here is that Jesus is the one in whom these hopes are fully, finally realized. The language of the day of the Lord, of the Messiah, is not readily on our lips. But these terms do capture the kind of unarticulated and deep longings of our lives, even if we don't use those terms. Longings for peace and for things to be set right. Longing that our lives might be caught up in something greater, touching something beyond. Longings that Mark 9 declares Jesus is singularly capable of meeting. His presence in the ordinary situations of life, his hiddenness and humility are not the full picture. Today is a reminder that he is not ordinary. He is not contained. He's singular in glory, unique in transcendence, higher, mightier, more exalted, and able to get us to where no one else can. There's no disparagement in Mark 9 of Moses and Elijah. But there is this sense that however great and authoritative they are, however valuable their words, their example, they pale in comparison to Jesus, both in glory and in what they can accomplish. The same is true of the authorities in our lives. No matter how valuable, no matter how good, they pale in comparison. Whomever they might be, political figures or parties, Tim Ferriss, Marie Kondo, Oprah, Jordan Peterson, celebrated authors, even parents, Jesus singularly stands above every other authority in glory and in competency to usher in the world we desire. And he is uniquely able to lead us into the life for which we're made, for which we long. The early church teacher Origen, reflecting on this passage, made a a significant deal of how Jesus leads the disciples up the mountain into the very presence of God, into the contemplation of eternal mysteries, as he puts it. The idea is, is that Jesus leads these three, leads his followers up out of the overwhelming, oppressive concern with all that we might taste, touch, see, earn and control into something greater, into eternal life. God is, of course, intimately concerned with our physical well-being and our ultimate destiny is his new creation. But Jesus Christ leads us into an awareness and experience of God's bewildering and transcendent glory such that we can live this different kind of life, qualitatively different in which the attachments of this world can grow strangely dim, less central, less captivating, less capturing. Origen points specifically to the notice in verse 2 that the transfiguration took place six days later. He suggests that's an allusion to creation. 
that the transfiguration takes place on the seventh day after the six days in which all things were created, he suggests means that Jesus is beyond created things, beyond anything found on the earth in the material universe. He's not made, he's not created. Created things so often hold for us the promise of a taste or an experience of transcendence but they cannot deliver. That's the stuff of which addiction is made. But Jesus, as one who is uncreated, is greater, is more, is more capable, he alone is able to get us where we need to go. Our lives unfold in ordinary spaces, and the glory may often be hidden, but to keep company with Jesus is to journey into glory. Well, how might we do this? How do we keep company with Jesus? One command, only one, listen to him. Hear, heed, obey. For the followers of Jesus, for those hoping to keep company with him, there's simply one command, listen to him. The question for life is not, will I listen to others or not? Rather, the question is, to whom will I listen? Whose vision of reality will inform my life and decisions? Whose way of life will form the pattern for my days, my rhythms, my routines? One of the most basic questions today for how someone thinks about the world right now is simply, who are you following on social media? Who's influencing you? Where do you get your news? Which broadcaster? To whom are you listening? Everyone is a disciple. Everyone is listening to someone. I've been struck over the past couple of years how it's just come up in conversation how influential Barack Obama's annual reading list is. People, especially men in my kind of like age bracket, my cohort, I hear working through that list, listening, taking their cues. To be a disciple of Jesus is to hear and heed his vision of reality, recognizing his transcendence, his singular place to pattern our lives after his voice, to take our cues from him. I don't know that it is uniquely the case in our time, but this is really difficult to do. So difficult. There are so many voices, so many competing visions of reality competing for our attention. And the very idea that Jesus, this first century carpenter, has words and perspective that should shape our 21st century lives can be difficult to believe or, or even just do reconcile that his words might have meaningful connection to the seemingly intractable problems we face personally and corporately can feel hopelessly naive, far too simple. The challenge of, of hearing rightly, applying rightly the words of Jesus is real. It's not a simple thing to do. That's, that's why we have to do it in community. That's why it takes care and study, diligence and perseverance. That's why it takes the Holy Spirit 
who brings to remembrance and guides us in hearing and listening to Jesus. I don't mean to deny the difficulty, the complexity of this in any way. But what I do want to emphasize this morning is that it is possible. And to be a disciple of Jesus, to be journeying with him on the way that leads to glory, up the mountain as it were, means we take on the posture of listening to him above all others. It's to have the expectation, the conviction that the vision of reality that he articulates and that his instructions matter most. That they are, as Peter says elsewhere, the words of life. The words that bring life with efficacy, with power, today in the whole of our lives, however complex, however modern and contemporary. This is what it means to be a disciple, to be with him, hanging on his every word. The Old Testament reading this morning captures this in a subtle way. Elijah is there on the mountain in the midst of all the noise at the edge of the cave, but he's there waiting in expectation for the word of the Lord that comes as a whisper. The psalm appointed for today that we did not read this morning, Psalm 27, implores us to wait for the Lord. Wait upon his voice in expectation, in conviction that his words matter. This notion of waiting actually points to a further difficulty we can have. Waiting is hard. All too often we do not wait. Obviously, when we talk about listening to the voice of Jesus, the Bible has a major role to play. It's not the whole game, but it matters a great deal how we approach Scripture, how we hear the Word of God. And one of the difficulties we face is how we bring our own cultural values, our own prior commitments, our own self-interest, and we frame what we hear in the Bible, what we hear of the Word of God, through them. This month, it's not particularly for Black History Month, but it kind of worked out that way. But this month, I'm reading African-American readings of Paul by the scholar Lisa Bowens. It's both an encouraging and a sobering read. Sobering for the ways it is so clear the word of God, scripture, has been used in history to support slaveholder religion, a phrase that Frederick Douglass coined. It's a reminder of the ways we might frame the word of God within our own ideologies or in our own self-interest and miss it so horribly, mishear, not listen at all. To listen to Jesus is to wait upon the Lord, and that involves submitting ourselves to his ends, allowing scripture to interrogate us, allowing Jesus' vision of reality to frame our perspective as we come to the Bible, as we think about our own lives, allowing his words to contain us. What's been encouraging about the book is the ways that faithful voices in history, faithful black voices in this book have continued to lay hold of scripture. Having so many reasons to assume that it has nothing life-giving to say for them yet standing firm in the expectation 
that the word of God will speak, that it has words of life. Bowen's quotes Frederick Douglass, not exactly a naive or simplistic person, not a weak person who was deceived. She quotes Douglass saying this, what do you do when you're told by slaveholders of America that the Bible sanctions slavery? Do you go and throw your Bible into the fire? Do you sing out no union with the Bible? Do you declare that a thing is bad because it's been misused, abused, or made bad use of? No. You press it all the more closely to yourself. You read it all the more diligently. And you prove from its pages that it is on the side of liberty. Waiting upon the Lord. Listening in expectation. I had a friend a few years ago, their daughter playing on a, a very competitive softball team. And they recounted how before playing some high stakes game, tournament, final game, and that sort of thing, the coach gathered the team in very, very close and got really, really quiet. And they told them in a quiet, quiet voice, listen to me. In the final innings, in the high pressure moments, with the crowd making all that noise, the other team, the umpires yelling, listen to my voice. That's an invitation to discipleship. That's an invitation the Lord of all glory extends to each of us. This is what it means to be on the way with him. It is to privilege and prioritize his voice above all others. In the hour of need, in the high stress situation, to recall, to consider his vision of reality, his guidance, his command. In scripture, in the Bible, through the spirit and prayer, in community. To put ourselves in places where his teaching is read, expounded upon, explained, to acquaint ourselves with it on our own in study, to make his word the soundtrack of our lives. What might this mean, especially considering the confounding things that Jesus says, the counterintuitive things? As we approach Lent, just like a basic idea would be every day, read a section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and read it with the prayer of, Lord, help me put this into practice today. Help me Obey and listen, hear and heed your voice this day. George MacDonald, the British contemporary of C.S. Lewis and J.R.L. Tolkien, once stated, and putting a very fine point on it, he once stated, instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said do it or abstained because he said do not do it. And this is the gut punch. It's simply absurd, MacDonald goes on, to say you believe or even want to believe if you do not do anything he tells you. We are to be a people, individually and corporately, who listen to Jesus, who hear and heed his voice, who prioritize his vision of reality. That MacDonald quote is sobering. If you're anything like me, it is potentially deflating. Because I often do not listen. All too often, I don't do all that he tells me. 
What does that say about me, about my being with Jesus, my discipleship? And the transfiguration itself, with all its transcendent otherworldly glory, can create this sense of distance or of unworthiness. Who could measure up? Jesus is so far above. Years ago, in, in one of my first seminary classes, I was lonely. I was married and from Vancouver, where the seminary was, where most students were single and ready to mingle. They're from out of town and they're for fun as well as study. Many of them were a little younger than me too. I felt out of place. In one class, I remember early morning class, I sat near the front alone. But I noticed in the same row, just a few spots over, the week after week, this one woman, Korean woman, sitting by herself, middle-aged, a little older than me. And at least to my mind, we were pals. We talked a little, though I can't speak Korean and her spoken English wasn't particularly strong. But I had a sense of kinship with her. It's me and her and all the rest of these youngins. I had a sense of kinship until, that is, a few weeks later, deeper into the semester. And during a chapel service, the speaker got up and talked about how we had a special treat that day. That we had this world-class pianist among us who was going to play who traveled the globe, played on grand stages among world leaders, even dignitaries, been to Canada many times in Seoul, Moscow, London. It was her. It was my pal in loneliness. And as she played amazingly, I remember in addition to appreciating it, thinking, I need to find a new place to sit. We can't be pals. She's on, on a different level than me. I felt unworthy. Maybe you can't identify with my 20-something imposter syndrome, but we do, I think, have this expectation all too often of hierarchy, that those who are higher in station or accomplishment, greater in glory, are perhaps rightly aloof or distant, at best calling back or calling down to the rest of us. And so considering the ways we fail to listen and just recognizing Jesus' place high above every created thing, far above our low estate, we may have a similar sense of Jesus, distant, aloof, at arm's length, high up on the mountain while we are down below. But if there is anything that is revealed today. It is that Jesus is gloriously different. Jesus does not stand far off. For all his bewildering transcendence, for all his elevation above every created thing, all powers and authorities, he does not hold you at arm's length. The second person of the Trinity does not rest easy in the heights. And his voice does not come from above calling us upward. Rather, he has plunged into the depths, into the loneliness, the mess, the grit of our lives, our brokenness, our failure. And from there, from that depth, he takes us with him. However poorly we've listened, however easily dismayed and confused we might be like Peter, James, and John, and he leads us 
faltering and stumbling, riven with sin. He leads us up into glory, into life with God. And the glory we see here in Mark 9 is ours because of him. The same radiance and beauty, the same sense of being cleansed from grime and sin as no one in creation could cleanse us is yours in Jesus. Both our collect for today and the art chosen for the bulletin online connect the transfiguration with the cross. Jesus' glory is most clearly revealed on the cross and through his resurrection to the other side of his crucifixion. And in his death, we have received this cleansing. On the basis of his death, we have this sure hope of glory with him, listening, hearing, heeding, journeying with Jesus. Glory that, though hidden, cannot be contained. Just as we close and in a posture of prayer, recognizing that Jesus says many different things and, and speaks with some particularity to us in our unique situations, our own lives. I want to paraphrase boldly, perhaps, what Jesus does say to all of us. And so if you're able, at home, as best you can, lean in and take on a posture of listening and hearing. Go ahead and do the best you can. And hear these words from the Christ who cannot be contained, from Jesus who's preeminent in glory, who is the words of life. Hear these words that matter more than any other. You are loved more than you can imagine. You are made in my glorious likeness with intention and with a dignity that you can scarcely comprehend as you are. And you are forgiven in your incompleteness, in your sin, in your choosing not to listen. God's grace for you is sufficient. And lastly, Jesus would say, I believe, walk in my way. Follow me. I want you near to me. Listen to my words. I'll lead you into glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.